Luke chapter 14 today. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 25 through 33, but we'll probably jump around a little bit. I love context. I love context when I'm reading the scripture. You don't really know what a verse means until you know what the verses before and the verses after mean. And um, So uh, there you go. That's why I do it. So if you're with us last week, you may remember I introduced a trinity of sermons um, highlighting different relationships that we have to Jesus. And the series is called uh, Teacher, Master, King. Though I felt Monday, mo- Friday morning when I woke up that it was important to rearrange the order I thought it was going to be in and deal with king before master. So, but it still, Teacher, Master, King rolls off the tongue a bit more, so I'm not changing the series name. And so today we're going to be looking at a scene that helps us to go deeper in what it means to have Jesus as our king. All right, this is, this is the, the goal of the message today, is to go deeper into relating to Jesus the Christ as our King. And my, my hope this morning, my aim this morning, is that the same way last Sunday my aim was that we would relate to Jesus and say, Jesus is my teacher and I am his student. We would also say, Jesus is my King and I am his loyal subject. And that word loyalty is going to be a key word for us this morning. Jesus is my king, and I am his loyal subject. So I'm going to read the word of God, and then I'll pray, and we'll go from there. These are the words of God. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Father, I thank you so much for these words. God, if someone in the flesh were trying to write a story about Jesus, they would never, ever, ever include this passage of Scripture. This is just not what we do. And Father, I see this as a sign that Jesus really lived and that his disciples were really there and that the Holy Spirit really inspired them to include even the most awkward and challenging things that Jesus said. And so, Father, I submit myself to you completely, Lord. You know I'm weak. 
And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd make me a true servant of your word for the sake of your beloved children in this room. And I pray, Father, that each person here, by your grace, would be encountered by King Jesus in a way that would count for eternity. And I pray these things for the glory of your name and because of your rich fatherhood towards us. Amen. When atheists want to persuade people to hate and reject Christianity, these, this passage is one of the ones they often go to. And they will say, Jesus was a crazy megalomaniac, which is a big word for somebody who thinks that they're the center of the universe and everyone needs to bow down and worship them. And they are awkward words. And they are challenging words. What Jesus says, turning to a crowd of people and saying, if you don't hate your mom and your dad, and your wife and your husband, and your children, you can't be my disciple. He doesn't say you won't be a great disciple. He doesn't say you'll be a second-class disciple. He doesn't say, this will slow you down as you're going to be my disciple. He says, you can't. And we must remember that Jesus was a master of using his words. He was both the word of God and the inventor of languages and a teacher by trade. So he's so particular in his wording. And these are the words of the Holy Spirit, carefully chosen, I remind us very regularly that the Bible, for being the Word of God, is actually a very, very, very short book. And so God was being very intentional with what he included and what he didn't. And so that cannot is... We're meant to be pierced. We're meant to be pierced. And I think that Part of this piercing really has to do with Jesus' kingship because you may remember this, this section of Scripture where he's challenging the crowds who follow him ends with that parable about two kings going to war. And as I'm going to say later, Jesus is that second king. This, this has to do with his kingship over Israel and the crowds that would follow him. And so this is, this is a kingship thing. And I'm wanting to highlight out of all the things that I could highlight about being Jesus, king, Jesus being king, his authority, his royalty, his regality, his worth of worship, all these things, I want to highlight something that maybe doesn't get highlighted enough is his right to demand and command loyalty out of his subjects. This is one of the big differences between monarchy and democracy. Um, no prime minister really can demand our loyalty. He's got four years. And then his head is in the chopping block again. Uh, not King Jesus. And not even a, a human king. There was a different conception of how that kind of government worked. That they were an intimate partnership of ruler and subject, of defender and defended, of led and follower. It, it was... It was 
in its best conception, meant to be a unity. And you, you might remember from the Old Testament, just in a, as an example, there was that one time where King David decided to take a census of the people, and it was a sin against God, and, and who bore the brunt of the punishment? Uh, not David, the, the people did. There was a plague sent among them, and they died, and, and, and David was thinking, I'm going to be a fleshly king, I'm going to, I'm going to count how many subjects I have, and, and his sin cost the people their lives. Because in God's idea of kingship, the king and the kingdom are one. And we, we live because of that, because we are one with our king. And so there's this idea of covenant loyalty that Jesus is bringing out here. And so he, he commands them to hate those people that really deserve the most loyalty. This is the craziest thing for Jesus to say, because... The word of God says that you're supposed to honor your mother and father. And in this instance, Jesus is saying you need to hate them in order to be my disciple. Um, The word of God says that you need to be faithful to your husband or your wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And even in the New Testament, it's it's heightened even more so. Husband, be Jesus to the wife. Jesus, be the church to the husband. And here's Jesus saying you actually need to hate these people in order to be my disciple. Um, Usually, uh, parental emotion means you want to protect and take care of and be loyal to your children, and God commands that we raise them up in the Lord and don't provoke them by being harsh, but lead them to Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying we need to hate them in order to be his disciple. So there's something going on here that we need to look at pretty intently. And what I don't want to do is just give you a pastoral gloss over which makes Jesus' words go away. He didn't say these things because he didn't want them taken seriously. He said these things because he wanted to pierce the crowd that was following him. Why did he feel like he needed to pierce them? Um, I want to look at the story that goes just before this in order to understand the real flavor of what Jesus was doing here. Um, And this is the reason. My eldest daughter was at the piano the other day, and she was kind of pressing notes. And and she, she said to me something that was really profound. She says, it's amazing. You press this note, and it sounds one way. I'm paraphrasing. But if you press a different note, and then you press that first note, it sounds different because of the comparison, because of the contrast. And I was like, way to notice that. And that is actually true in many areas of life. If you crack open a can of Pepsi, it tastes really sweet. But if you drink that same Pepsi after you've just downed a Boston cream pie with the chocolate and the the filling, it doesn't taste sweet anymore because of the intensity of the sugar of that, that topping, which is pretty much just... 13 kinds of sugar mixed together with a little bit of cocoa. And um, it's so intense, the sugar, that all of a sudden your Pepsi just tastes like club soda because it can't compare anymore. So the flavor of your Pepsi has been augmented by that donut. And so it works in many areas of life. It works with temperature. The same room feels really warm when you've been outside in a Manitoba winter. And the same temperature room feels really cold when you've been outside in a Manitoba summer. And there's, there's, there's this effect by comparison, by having things close together. And, and the, 
Gospels are written like this, and we're meant to look at the stories behind and before and kind of see how the, they impact each other. And the story that just precedes this, this these super powerful words from Jesus um, is a story of Jesus being at a banquet, being at a dinner party. And he's invited to this dinner party, and a few things happen. And one of them is that he sees the guests are kind of jockeying for the positions of honor. And he he's challenging them not to do this. And one of the things he says to them is, you know, go, go to the lower place, and then when the, the host of the party comes, he'll, see, he'll see, see you and say, why are you sitting at the front door? You're my friend. Come, come sit at the table. In fact, come sit by me. And by taking the lower place, you end up at a higher place. And he says to the host of the party, he says, you know, when you throw this party, don't just invite the important people in town who can invite you back to even better parties. He says, invite the people who can never pay you back, the poor and the lame and the blind, the have-nots, the people that can never pay you back, and guess what? God will pay you back at the, at the judgment, at the end of time. And somebody at that party, hearing about like the end of time, says, he says this, uh, he, he says out loud, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So it's like, yeah, that'll be so great. Then, at that great party with Abraham, when all the saved people are together, it's going to be so great at that time. And Jesus returns the tennis ball that was kind of lightly batted at him with a smoking overhead smash that absolutely destroys this, this proclamation. He tells a story about somebody throwing a great wedding banquet. And when it's all ready, he sends out his servants to go and gather everybody. But the servants go to the people who were invited, and they're like, Ah, I can't make it. Uh, I just bought a tractor, and I want to do some farming. I, I just got married, and uh, so marriage stuff. Uh, too busy, can't come. And the master of the party gets kind of angry and he sends his servants out to the people who weren't invited and then there's even more room so he sends them out to the strangers he says go to the highways go to the byways go out to highway number one with a billboard and a placard block off the highway so people have to turn off the highway to come to steinbeck force people to come to my party and the moral of that parable is jesus is saying you know what i look around and i hear a lot of people saying they want to go to heaven but i don't actually see them wanting to go to heaven they talk the talk but A lot of people talk about wanting to go to heaven, but not a lot of people actually act like they do. And so he sees in the people that are surrounding him this self-deception. He sees in these people this self-deception. They really think that they are wanting to be with God and are loyal to God, but actually there's, there's a whole lot of other things that are way more important to them. And so as he's being followed by this crowd that are filled with the same spirit as this guy who is yelling out, it'll be great at the banquet of Abraham. And, and he's probably one of those people that was jockeying for positions in the first place. He turns to them and he says, I, I'm going to help them by revealing to each one of them that there, are, there is something they love way more than God. Because I'm God. And I'm going to tell them that unless they love me more than the most important things in their life, 
unless their loyalty to me is so great that they actually hate their close family members in comparison to me, or if they are put in a position where they have to choose, they will definitely choose me over anything else. I'm going to put them in that position and let them squirm so that they can see what is really in their heart. That's what's going on, I think. And my, my further evidence for this is these two little side parables that Jesus tells to explain what he means by calling people to hate their families and even their own lives. Calling them to pick up their cross and follow him. And if they won't do these things, they can't be his disciples. He tells two stories, one about building a tower and one about facing another king. And I really, I think I misread this tower story for quite a long time. I thought the point of the story was, um, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's like building a tower. And if you don't, you know, have the resources to follow Jesus, and you quit halfway through following Jesus, you're going to look like an idiot. I thought that's what this story was about. But, but it, then I also kind of knew that it didn't fit with the next story about the two kings. It's like, that, that doesn't seem to be the same issue. But it's dawned on me as I meditated on this that both of these stories are military examples. In the Old Testament times and the New Testament times, you didn't build towers for the view. Okay? I've sometimes really wanted to build a tower in Steinbeck because it only needs to be one foot taller than the trees and you can see to the ends of the universe. Thank you, prairies. You know, you can see forever. And so I was like, it would be so sweet. You build a house and then let it have a tower on the side. You can have this nice spiral staircase that goes up to um, the top, which is like a reading room with windows on every side. And, and that would be so sweet. And then if you had a pellet gun. I mean a water balloon launcher. Or maybe a potato cannon. Rain it in, Balfour. But in the Old Testament times, you built towers for military defense. And if you go through Judges, you'll remember, you'll remember that this happened a couple times where Abimelech or some other guy would come and attack a town and they would go and hide in the tower. And they would hope that either someone would come to their rescue or that the people would get tired of camping out at the bottom of the tower and then the people would be saved from this military attack. Or the other way that a tower was used was an expression of human pride. What's the most famous tower built in the Bible? The Tower of Babel. God had told mankind, increase, multiply, fill the earth. And mankind in rebellion was saying, why don't we just gather together, build a tower, and make a name for ourselves? God, we don't need God to go to heaven. We're going to build a tower. We're going to get there ourselves. What, what did God do to that building project? And so with these two pictures of military defense and human pride exalting itself against God, Jesus says to the people, so you're building a tower against me. You're building a structure with your lives and your, your relationships 
that's meant to protect you from giving me loyalty, absolute loyalty as your king. How do you think that's going to go? Do you actually have the resources in your family, in your marriage, in your children to create a life of pleasure, self-fulfillment, satisfaction, validation, peaceful-mindedness, hope and joy that can stand against the King of Kings when he comes to claim his rightful rule. I think that's what he's saying. And I think that works together with the next parable about a king with 10,000 people considering whether or not he can win a battle against a king with 20,000 people. Jesus is saying to them, okay, I'll admit it. You have some abilities. In this parable, I'll let you be a king. A king of 10,000 people, that sounds like a lot of people. You've got money, you've got education, you've got free time, you've got free health care, you've got a smoking hot babe for a wife. That's me. Jesus is talking to me right now. And uh, saying, you got a lot of stuff. But even with all this stuff that you have, will you be able to stand against me when I come to you with my 20,000? And it's not really 20,000. It's 20,000 million billion. Because the King of Kings is unstoppable. Can you, with your earthly loyalties, resist the one who comes from heaven to summon you to be my loyal subject. I think that's what's going on. And I think that the scriptures are best read that way. So this whole scene is about a king commanding absolute loyalty from his subjects. What does it mean to hate your life? I want to go there because I think it answers the question for hating your children and hating your spouse and hating your parents. Um, What does it mean to hate your life? What I don't think it means is to indulge in self-pity. Because there is a kind of person who's like, yeah, I already hate my life. I look at my sin, I look at my failures, I look at my face, I look at my body, I look at my, my lost hope for the future, I look at my failed relationships, and I hate it. And so, yes, I already hate my life. So, yay, I can be a disciple now. I don't think that's the kind of life-hating that Jesus is talking about. Because that kind of life-hating, voice of experience, voice of too much experience, is really being angry at failing to live up to your own expectations and hopes, failing to be able to make an idol out of yourself, finding out that you can't be the God you wanted to be for yourself, and to make everything turn out just the way you wanted it to be. That kind of bitter, self-pity-laden hating of life 
is really just anger at failing to be God. Voice of experience, voice of too much experience, voice of hard-learned, hard-earned experience. So I don't think that's what he means when he says, come and hate your life. What I do think he means is to embrace every cost and loss with joy in order to have Jesus. To see that the only way to follow Jesus is to embrace every loss, and all the pain with joy in order to have the Lord. And you can see that in the book of Philippians where, where Paul says, I've lost all things and consider them gray water. I think it's probably the best translation. If you know plumbing, that's where all the stuff that you flush down the toilet collects. That's, that's a good translation for that Greek word that doesn't have four letters in it. I consider it gray water compared to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, sharing in his sufferings, experiencing his resurrection, so that by any means, sorry, so that by any means I might share in his resurrection. I butchered it a little bit. You can go check it out for yourself. That's what he means. To be willing to embrace all the pain of life as a way of knowing Jesus. That's why he says, pick up your cross too. Because the king of kings, guys, how he loves us. The king of kings who the book of Revelation says right now is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The king of kings was on his way to Jerusalem to die for his people. Because you can panic when Jesus says to you, you're willing to hate your mom and your dad? And by that, I think he just means, will you decide beforehand if, if you say, Mom, Mom, I'm a Christian, I'm going to church. And she says, I, I don't like your church, I don't want you to go there. And you've already decided beforehand, yeah, I'll honor you, but I'm not losing Jesus for your approval. When your kid comes to you and they're grown up and they said, I, I'm going to embrace a sexual ethic that rejects Jesus, have you already decided beforehand that you're not going to change what you think, what, what the Bible says in order to love them and make them feel better about themselves and to avoid hard conversations, you've, you'll, you'll lose. You'll be willing to lose them for me. If your wife or your husband goes off the rails and they decide that they're going to walk away from Jesus, you've already decided that while being as faithful as you can to the teachings of Christ, you're not going to lose Jesus over them. And Jesus is saying, if you can't say that, you can't be my disciple. It just won't work. It's not The problem's not on Jesus' end. It's not like he's kicking them out. He's just saying, my whole life is moving towards death and cross and pain.
pain and loss and suffering. You, you won't pick up your cross if you can't do that. You can't follow me to Calvary. Guys, you go to a church that's named after the place where Jesus was crucified. This, I, I get stuck by this sometimes. We go to a church. It, it's weird. I go to Calvary Chapel. It's like saying, I go to Death Row Church. I go to Mass Grave Chapel. I go to the electric chair assemblies. It's crazy. It's true. So that's the issue. And so what Jesus does next, or what the scriptures do next, because you feel like, is he goes into chapter 15, which are these famous parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. Because if Jesus is going to say to you, you have to lose everything to follow me, he wants you to know who you're following. And so he says to them, and I'm just going to go quick. He says to them, the person you're going to lose everything for is like a shepherd who even though he has 99 sheep, he will leave them to go and find you because he is so outrageously loyal. He's so lovingly loyal. He is so, I'm going to die for you, loyal. The king who is calling you to lose everything to follow him and to be his loyal subject is like a woman who lost a coin, who even though she is still stinking rich with those nine silver coins, like for a widow or a lone woman to have nine silver coins was a lot of money. So she's still rich, but she will search everywhere. And when she finds that coin, she will partay with her neighbors over finding this lost coin. You are giving your life to a king so loyal that he has decided eternity is going to be his celebration party for getting you. And we're supposed to see the connection. He was at a banquet where people didn't really want to go to heaven that bad. And now he's telling a story about a woman who is going to throw a banquet to celebrate over all the people who actually wanted to come because they loved the, the cross-bearing king. We're supposed to see those connections. Okay, party here, party there. What's the difference? And then that great story that is like one of the most famous stories of all time, the story of the prodigal father running to reach his child. And we often say, yeah, that's about the father, but I want to say that's about the king. What's the king like? Because in the New Testament times, the Old Testament times, and they were onto something we really lost, a fatherhood and kingship had a lot in common. And they would call the kings the fathers of the nation. And so that picture of a father running to that lost child who had rejected him and blown the inheritance and was coming home, that is, that is the picture of the cross-bearing king. And yes, the father, but there's a lot of overlap. When Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, we have to deal with a lot of overlap here. But he's trying to, I think the reason these stories are positioned here is that Luke wants us to get that the king who calls us to such radical loyalty to him is so unbelievably loyal to his subject. Amen?
Oh, my Lord. I'm going to just wrap this up by giving us a a scene from the Old Testament that is a heart attitude that we can take for ourselves if you want to be that kind of loyal subject who, though loving mother and father, as Jesus commands us to do, not if it means losing Jesus. There's a scene from the book of Samuel, we may, you may remember it, where Saul is king, and he's in the battle with the Philistines. This is the beginning of the Israelite revolt. The Philistines are kind of dominating Israel, and God has given Israel a king, not the great king, not the one that they really need, but the one that they wanted. And the Israelite army only has two swords amongst them. And so they're at this real standoff. And the Bible says that Saul's army is on one side and the fil- of, a, of a craggy canyon and the Philistine army is on the other side of this craggy canyon. And Jonathan and his armor bearer are there. And an armor bearer is kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of a, of a golf caddy, except in war. And so he'd be like, the, the warrior would be like, oh, that Philistine is about 150 yards. I think this is the nine iron. And so the armor bearer would rummage around for the right javelin. (laughs) Oh, hole in one. That one in particular. (laughs) I just made that up. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll try not to include that in the next message that will go online. But you can, you can kind of see how they're in battle together and they, could live, they are living and dying together, that there would be kind of the most in, intimate of loyalties formed there. And Jonathan, with carrying one of the only two swords in the army, says, I'm kind of tired of waiting around. How about we do this? We go and challenge the Philistine armies, just you and me. And if they say, we'll come down to you, we'll let them do that. But if they say, you guys come up to us, then we'll know that God has given them into our hands. Right? Do you remember this scene? And the armor bearer says to Jonathan, his prince at the time, but someday to be his king, he says, do all that is in your heart. Do all that you wish. I am with you, heart and soul. Some of the most profound words of devotion and loyalty ever spoken. Oh, my king. So this really is a death wish. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. I am with you heart and soul. And we know that that was the, the beginning of the end for the Philistines. The armor bearer followed Jonathan down one side of the rocky crag and then the other side, which was labeled, the name of that other side of the hill was labeled like um, thistles and thorns or something like that. So they were crawling on their hands and knees through the the bush to get up to the Philistines and then it was a slaughter from there. But just that heart attitude. I'm just giving you words that in prayer you can say to Jesus to practice having this kind of loyalty that Jesus has called us to. And yeah, we'll fail. And yeah, we'll falter. Don't forget the Apostle Peter denying Jesus in front of the whole world when he needed 
or could have used somebody to say, yeah, I still love Jesus. Jesus came to him and loved him and reinstated him, but this is what Jesus is calling us to. To to say to ourselves, Jesus is my king and I am his loyal subject. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for my king. Father, you know that when Jesus comes us, calls us to die, all we see is the dying. But you see the eternal life. And so you're never ashamed in your word to say, come and die to follow Jesus, because you see the joy, you see the freedom, you see the hope, you see the resurrection power, and you see the eternal glory, and you see the crown of reward that you want to give us for following your Son. I pray, Father, even as we have been um, impacted by the call of Jesus to come and to learn to hate our lives, Father, we would give up on these subtle and deceptive ways that we've loved ourselves, either through self-pity or self-promotion, Lord Jesus, either through trying to manage Jesus and negotiate with him. I'm going to have this part of my life be my own thing, and you can have these things, Lord. You're Lord of Sundays, but I need Mondays. I need Saturdays, all to me. Lord, you'd set us free so we could truly have you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.